0: You've probably heard me tell you this before, show me your friends and I will show you your future. That was actually one of my childhood pastor's favorite one-liners, his one-isms, if you will, when I was a young boy. It was his exhortation to us to choose our friends wisely. There's a lot of truth in Pastor Al's advice, isn't there? I'm sure if you're a parent or grandparent, you probably have told your loved ones about choosing their friends wisely at some point as well. You know, friendships often shape who we are. You know, the people that we surround ourselves with the most usually end up affecting us, affecting us in ways that really shape how we make decisions in our life. When we share certain things in common and when we extend trust to one another, We inevitably, as friends, lead one another in a certain direction, often without even realizing it. I mean, evaluate your closest friends in your life today. How have the friends you've chosen to associate with or the spouse you're married to affected where you're at in life today? What college you went to? What job you have? what type of clothes you wear, what sports or hobbies you enjoy, what TV shows you watch, what music you listen to, what type of jokes you laugh at, what food you enjoy, what books you read, what you post or don't post on social media, what morals you uphold. Here we are, we're sitting in a church. Think about how your friends have influenced you To determine what church you would join or even the pastors that you would decide to learn under since you've become a Christian. I think it's safe to say that the friends that have had the best impact on our lives are generally the ones who've given us the wisest advice and it's the ones who've believed in us more than we even believed in ourselves. At the very least, It's the friends who have set a good example for us to imitate. Show me your friends, and I will show you your future. Well, brothers and sisters, tonight we're not looking at the topic of friendship, per se, but we are looking at the topic of elders or pastors in a local church. And as we learned last time, looking at this topic together, like friends the leaders that we choose to follow for our spiritual growth, it matters. It matters because it matters to Jesus. And it matters because it can have a huge impact on our lives. It can impact our families. It can impact our communities. It can have a huge impact for both good and for bad in our lives. The biggest impact that leadership can have is both on the health of your own local church, but also your very understanding of God himself. You remember that foundational text we looked at last week? It's kind of the, uh, the cement that we're standing on as we're thinking about the importance of leadership. It was from Luke chapter 6, verses 39 and 40. Jesus said, can a blind man lead a blind man? Will they not both fall into a pit? A disciple is not above his teacher, but everyone, when he is fully trained, will be like his teacher. You see, Jesus often tied together concepts like friendship in discipleship, like tying two shoestrings together. They really just kind of go hand in hand. The people you are most around, you are probably influencing them, and they are probably influencing you. That's really kind of the heartbeat behind discipleship. But discipleship and leadership go hand in hand. Those who are influencing you, those who you are looking up to, those you are learning from, are those you are ultimately being trained by. Without knowing it, you are becoming like the person or people you're looking up to. You know, Pastor Al's advice about friends has a lot of truth in it for us to consider. I want to go one step further tonight on Pastor Al's advice by saying the same thing about elders. Show me your elders, and I'll show you the future of your church. Show me your elders... And I will show you the future of your church. Now, two weeks ago, we began this series, this evening series on elders by looking at the function of an elder. The function, what does the office of an elder do? Like, what is the task? What is it that he is responsible to carry out? And really, in main summary, the two points I gave you was this. An elder leads and protects. He teaches and corrects. He leads and protects, and he teaches and he corrects. In summary, elders are the men that the Holy Spirit sets apart and are recognized and commissioned by the church as spiritual leaders who set a godly example before Christians. They teach God's word to God's people, equip them for ministry, and they protect God's people from wolves, and from false teaching. Last time we looked at 1 Peter 5, verses 1 to 5, as we considered the very heartbeat of what it means to be an elder, a man who is called to shepherd God's flock. Elders are therefore under shepherds. They're not CEOs. They're not running the ship. They are under shepherds who lead and preside over the flock of God that has been entrusted to their care, but all under the supreme authority of the chief shepherd, Jesus Christ. That means an elder or an overseer is not a dictator. He's not a taskmaster. He's not a pharaoh-like figure that cracks the whip on God's people. No, An elder, if he understands his role, and the church understands his role, is that he is a servant leader of Christ as he leads with humility, courage, and love as he cares for the sheep that Christ died for. So just in case you're kind of new to the term elder, unless you grew up Church of Christ, Mormon, or Presbyterian, It might sound a little odd to you still, but let me again continue to educate you of what's in your Bible. In the New Testament, there are three different words that are used interchangeably to refer to the same biblical office, elders, overseers, and pastors, or as Ephesians 4 says, pastor-teacher. The word elder is used most frequently in the New Testament to refer to this office. In the Gospels, the word is used sometimes to the leaders of the Jewish Sanhedrin that sided with the Pharisees and Jews that opposed Christ. In the Old Testament, it often referred to the older men who were revered in the nation of Israel, and they had various kind of judicial roles of authority. You could read a little bit about that in Numbers 11, or another example in Ruth chapter 4. But under the New Covenant, In the local church, elders were identified as men that met the biblical qualifications laid down in 1 Timothy 3, verses 1 to 7, and Titus chapter 1, verses 6 to 9. The way the term elder is used in the New Testament most likely refers not to their numerical age, as if elders are merely and only men with back problems and gray hair, but rather to their respectability, their spiritual maturity. That's why in 1 Timothy 3, verse 6, one of the qualifications is that an elder must not be a recent convert. He can't be a brand new Christian. He can't be a baby in the faith. He can't be a novice in the things of God, as he says, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. In other words, a man qualified to be an elder must demonstrate a level of spiritual maturity that other believers can grow under and that they can emulate in their own life. Now, as far as age requirements, the New Testament office really doesn't specify in the New Testament. Of course, common sense would say that a minor, you know, someone under 18 years old, would usually not be old enough to hold this office Uh, But that's not to say that a young man in his 20s or 30s could not already be showing the fruits of this type of maturity. I mean, you may recall Timothy in the New Testament. He's never called specifically a pastor, overseer, or an elder. But everything Paul gives him to do is basically the function of a local church elder. And you might recall what Paul had to remind young Timothy when he left him behind in Ephesus. 1 Timothy 4, verse 12. Let no one despise you for your youth. In other words, Timothy was young. He was easily somewhere in his 20s, 30s, maybe even 40s. But Paul's probably in his 60s by the time he writes this. So he's much younger than Paul. Let no one despise you for your youth, but set the believers an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, in purity. And let me just make a point right there. If you are a young person here, if you are still in the home, if you're a child, you are never too young to be a godly example to other Christians in this church. Never let anyone look down on you because you're younger. No, 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 no. Jesus was 12 years old and astounding everyone around him with his questions. And we read in the scriptures, age is not a hindrance to God doing great things through your life. So just because you're young doesn't mean you can't set the believers a good example. The term overseer, sometimes translated bishop, that's more commonly used in Episcopal circles, refers to the functional description of an elder. An elder or overseer, he supervises. It's kind of like a um, lifeguard looking out over the beach, watching over the welfare of the members of that church. Uh, That scope of oversight can really cover basically everything at the end of the day. Uh, They are looking over uh, the church's life, membership, church discipline, the church budget, discipling, preaching, teaching, counseling, evangelism, missions, and identifying other elders and deacons. That doesn't mean elders do all the work, elders equip others to do the work, but they are overseeing, they are watching over Christ's flock. Now, if you want to continue doing your studies or you want to listen to that sermon from two weeks ago, you can do that, but a few passages that you might consider. Uh, Drew's going to probably put them up on the screen. You could jot those down that will help you understand more about what an elder is supposed to do. Acts 6:4, Acts 20-28, Ephesians 4 11, and 12 James 5-14, 1 Peter 5-1-4, 1 Timothy 5-17-18, and, and 2 Timothy 4-1-5. Now, with all that said, open your Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 3. 1 Timothy chapter 3. Using the Chair Bibles, that's on page 576. 576. Tonight, our main focus is not on the function of an elder, what he does, we've already covered that, but rather the desire and character that the man must possess in order to be qualified to serve in this office. Now, just to let you guys know what we're doing tonight, at the conclusion, I'll give you an opportunity to ask another question. Last time we had about three or four. If you have a question that pops in your mind, jot it down and ask it. If you're too embarrassed or not ready to ask it in public, send me an email. Stop me in the hallway. Basically, my MO is this. If you think of something, say something. Capisce? All right. Got to ask me. That's how we're going to grow together. I want you guys to understand this. First Timothy 3, verses 1 to 7. This is God's word. I have two main points for us. It's going to come up on the screen cuz they're a little lengthy. Little again I got to chew on it. Like a really tough steak, but I promise you the juices are great. Every word is chosen on purpose. What must an elder possess to be qualified for this office? What must he be? Number 1, he must possess a godly ambition to lead and care for Christ's church not under compulsion. Or for self promotion, but willingly and humbly for God's glory. It's a lot packed in there. You have to think about it for a little while. Point number two He must possess a commendable example and godly reputation among his personal family, his church family, and the surrounding community God has placed him in. So let's look at number one the first and most obvious thing that the man must be is that he knows the Lord. He must be converted. I want to say this loud and clear because churches have been wrecked when they have glossed over this obvious qualification. The man must be born again. He must be a Christian. And I'm not merely stating that he once, once upon a time walked down an aisle, cried at a Christian camp, or led a youth group one semester. I don't care if his granddaddy or his daddy was a pastor somewhere at some time. I don't care how many Bible verses he can quote. The devil can outdo him. I don't care how good of a public speaker he is. I don't care what type of career he's had in another business or vocation. I don't care how charming he is around old people if the man does not show obvious fruits of the Holy Spirit. We're talking Galatians 5, 22 to 23, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, and self-control. He should never be affirmed to pursue pastoral ministry. He needs to hear the gospel again, and he needs to believe it for himself. You see, one of the devil's most clever tricks is getting churches to be too focused on a man's winsome personality, his theological education, or how good he is at public speaking. All the while, guess what, guys? None of those things make him a pastor, None of those things even make him a Christian. The man must show obvious fruits of regeneration. He needs to be born again. You know, one thing you can show discernment here is to ask who are the people in his life that know him the best. Get them to describe him. Get them to describe if he has an obvious love for Jesus. Otherwise, beloved, (laughs) we still have churches all over the place being led by men who are telling others to be saved, and they are not saved themselves. I'll also add this, with the exception of the rarest of situations, a man should not be encouraged to pursue seminary education, go on the mission field, or aspire to pastoral ministry if he isn't an active member in good standing of a gospel preaching church that knows him fairly well. Listen, the seminary does not call pastors. The college ministry does not call pastors. Mama and daddy do not call pastors. God calls pastors. And he ordinarily affirms that calling through the accountability of biblical local churches. So if you're taking notes, you can say Pastor Blake's rant over right here. There we go. But I needed to say all that because so many churches are chomping at the bait of things that are actually not really biblical. And there are men that are genuinely not converted. They're not even Christian. And they're hiding behind their PhDs and slick hairdos and charming personality, but they don't know the Lord. So I want us to be a church that's discerning so that we don't have a wolf on our elder board by God's grace. Let's move on. The man needs to be soundly converted, but he also must possess an internal desire to aspire to this office. So that's the second part. He must have an internal desire for this noble task. First Timothy three, verse one. The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. I mean, this is just a very plain question. Does the man want to be an elder in Christ's church? He needs to be able to answer that question in the affirmative. Now, there might be some of you in here, and I'm not a prophet, but I've been in churches long enough, and I've served as an elder, and I've been around all types of personalities. There are some men in here that one day will be an elder. They're just timid, insecure, and never have anyone encouraged them. But they're godly. They're discipling. They're a good representation of Jesus. They know their Bibles. And that's why I'm here to believe in you, men, more than you even believe in yourself. That's the mark of the type of elders we should all want in every church that those who are leading God's flock will actually believe in you more than you believe in yourself. Now, with all that said, at the end of the day, I can't put that desire in you. It's got to be from God. The Holy Spirit has to awaken that desire in you to aspire to this office, whether that's full-time vocational ministry or that is serving faithfully as a lay elder. That is not manufactured by any men. And so, for me personally, I will never force a man to be an elder. I can tell really quickly if I've had a conversation at least multiple times and there is great trepidation and hesitation and a lack of really earnestness, I'm backing off. Because the last thing you want is someone serving as a leader in Christ's church that's doing it under compulsion, but not willingly. That would be a disqualification at that point. But. If he does desire to be an elder, then you will already see a desire, Lord willing, for Christ, a love for his sheep, a love to see Christ's church built up and God's name glorified. Listen, a man who wants a title but doesn't show a track record of love for others and a love for truth is desiring the office for the wrong reasons. Give an example, if a young man comes to me, whether I'm at a conference or in the hallway or I'm at coffee, and this has happened even multiple times, if he tells me he's considering pursuing pastoral ministry, the first thing I do is I try to encourage him. I say, thank God that you're thinking well about the church. I'm I'm actually applauding your aspiration to serve Christ's church. I don't want to squash his zeal. I want to fan that flame, right? But if I've got about five minutes with this guy and I got three questions to just popping with and he can follow back up with me, here's what I'm asking him. Brother, how long have you been desiring this? I mean, basically, tell me about your journey so far. Is this something you just kind of like, just kind of made up and happened five minutes ago? <laughs> Has this been going on for years? Kind of just want to know your track record. Where's the Lord brought you to this place? Why do you want to be a pastor? Just answer the motives, brother just tell it to me plainly. And lastly, does anyone else who knows you well think you should do this? Because here's the thing about it. I struggled for years on whether or not I should be in pastoral ministry. But my wife would tell you who's serving back there, it's not because no one else saw it. It's because I was super hard on myself. And it was when God opened my eyes to everyone around me who was going, brother, you're in the wrong job brother, you're in the wrong path. Brother, every time you pray, every time you teach, every time I'm around you, I just, I feel like I'm around a pastor, you know, and I'm like 25 and I'm thinking, I can't even change the oil in my truck, brother. You know, I I don't know what I'm doing. And and, and so over the years, the Lord brought confirmation, but it has been a common thread throughout church history and through experience. If you're God's man, whether full-time vocational or as a layman, others will affirm that desire, and they will affirm that you are godly. So do other people talk about it? Do they affirm it? Now, aside from whatever answers he gives me, one of the most important things I'm looking for in a man this aspiring to be an elder is humility in his life. Christ-like humility. Not his giftedness, not how sharp he is theologically, but humility. It's the most attractive quality, I think, for me, if you had to ask me, When I look for in a Christian, no matter what, I think any man desiring to serve as an elder should have the heart of humility like John the Baptist did. This is a great text to memorize. John 3 verse 30. He, Jesus Christ, must increase, but I must decrease. That's a good verse for every Christian here tonight. If you want to be greatly used of God, may that be your prayer. Christ must increase. I must decrease. Every man who serves as an elder should long to see Christ's name be lifted up, even if that means his name being forgotten. And notice the end of the verse. Paul says this is a noble task. That means this is a good use of the man's time. It's a worthwhile endeavor to spend and be spent for the soul's Now, don't be mistaken, as you learned last time, if I wasn't clear on this enough, eldering is a difficult task. I think I've aged more in the last six years than I would have probably in a different vocation. If you're going to do real gospel-centered ministry, it's going to get messy real quick. It's going to get difficult. It's going to be perplexing. It's going to sometimes be deeply discouraging where an elder, like a farmer, is plowing the soil, plowing the soil, plowing the soil, and oftentimes not seeing much fruit from his labors, at least for a while. That's why the role of a pastor, the role of an elder, is not for the faint of heart. If a man seeks to be faithful in shepherding Christ's flock, he will find that he will have many battles he'll have to face. I remember meeting with A uh, Presbyterian pastor, really solid brother, and uh, I wasn't a pastor yet, but I wanted to be. He said, Brother, tell me about the sins in your life that you're still struggling with. And I gave them to him, and one of them was the fear of man. And he said, Well, brother, if you want to be a pastor, you better get over that real quick, because you won't last. You better learn how to fear God more than you fear man, or you won't last. Either that, or you'll sell out, you'll compromise. Brother, learn how to fear God now. That's why the role of a pastor is the role of a shepherd. You're going after stubborn sheep at times, sheep that are weak, sheep that are weary, but you're going after Christ's sheep to encourage them, to love them, hoping to bring them back to the fold. But shepherding in Christ's flock is a noble task. It's beautiful. It's honorable eldering is preparing god's people to meet their god eldering is preparing god's people to meet their god he must possess a godly ambition to lead and care for christ's church not under compulsion or for self-promotion but willingly and humbly for god's glory Number 2 he must possess a commendable example and godly reputation among his personal family his church family and the surrounding community God has placed him in Well here in verses 2 to 7 we're going to see the remainder of the qualifications that a man must possess at least in some clear and mature measure if he's going to serve as an elder Paul says I'll give you a few points to consider He has a godly reputation everywhere he goes. He has a godly reputation everywhere he goes. Look right there in verse 2. The leadoff hitter of the qualifications, if you will, beyond desire, is that he must be above reproach. Now, this doesn't mean the man is sinless. If that happened, we would have no elders. This doesn't mean that the man is mature and godly in all the ways he could ever be. Remember, even the most godly elder is still a sheep. He's still a disciple. He's still a son of God. Elders are in need of sanctification, just like the rest of the church. However, an elder will walk with Jesus with a transparency in his life like a fish swimming in a clear bowl of water. Yes, a man qualified to serve as an elder will still have remaining sin in his life, And he fights against that sin. He confesses that sin. He has others hold accountable for in his life for that sin. But he isn't hiding in any sin. He isn't characterized by his sin. He's not known by others for his sin. In other words, he's a model that when Christians look at him, he's a model of confessing his sin, receiving God's mercy, asking for prayer, and repenting and following Jesus. You know, this man's life may have many freckles and a garden variety of sin struggles, but there isn't a dominating blemish on the man's character. And There's nothing that people would rebuke him for that even others in the community, in particular non-Christians, would say that they're shocked that that man's a leader in Christ's church. That's why Paul says in verse 7, Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders. It means unbelievers, those outside the community of faith, so that he may not fall into disgrace into a snare of the devil. Paul also mentions that second aspect. He demonstrates faithfulness to his wife and leadership in the home. He demonstrates faithfulness to his wife and leadership in the home. Now, I can speak more about this at another time, but I don't think marriage is necessarily A requirement for the office. But most men serving as an elder will be married. The fact that he's married is not really Paul's point. Just because he has a ring on his finger doesn't make him qualified. If the man is married though, it's the quality of the man's marriage. It's his fidelity towards his marriage vows that Paul is most focused on here. And if the man is single, he should demonstrate honorable character and sexual purity. Uh, This will show show up in his dating relationships, if he is dating, or at the very least sexual purity in his life of celibacy. This man is kind to both men and women, but he's not known as the flirty guy. He's not the guy with the crude posters, the crude images on his phone. He's a one-woman kind of man. Gentlemen, He's the kind of man you would feel 100% safe at peace with allowing your wife to be in the same room with him. It wouldn't bother you at all because you know that that man is faithful to his wife. Ladies, he's the kind of man that shows faithfulness to his wife in a way that makes you feel safe when you're around him. And if the man has children, he shows an overall concern for leading his family in virtually every conceivable way. Perfectly? No. Can he improve? Absolutely. It's a bonus if the man marries up, makes him look better. I've seen some men on elder boards going, yeah, your wife is 50% of the reason we're here, because she's awesome. She makes you look good. Anyway, that's how I married into it. Praise the Lord. I guess I can just kind of skip through a few things here. I think one thing I do want to say very clearly about this managing his own household well, uh, this doesn't mean the man has perfectly obeyed kids, obeying kids all the time. Uh, Last time I checked, folly is bound in the heart of a child, and it doesn't say a pastor's child or a non-pastor's child. Uh, Folly is bound up in the heart of their dad, and I'm in need of sanctification just like you. I'm tempted with outbursts of anger and impatience and desperation and need for help. But I want to just make the point that Paul says, if you want to know if a man can care for Christ's church, first look at how he's caring for his little church at home. Look at his wife. Look at his children. Is he laying out for them an orderly, peaceful, Christ-honoring direction in his child-rearing years? So I would encourage you, pray for me, pray for Julie, pray for future elders. Pray for their families. My children need Jesus, and their daddy needs Jesus, just like you. Finally, Paul says he is a man of self-control and selflessness. He is a man of self-control and selflessness. Verse 2, he must be sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable. Verse 3, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. Uh, He is a man that demonstrates self-control. He has a handle on his bodily appetites. Paul says he's not a drunkard. What he puts in his body doesn't control him. He shows moderation, alertness, and an ability to say no to the temptation to become intoxicated. Uh, He has a handle on his anger and his words. Yes, an elder will sin with his words at times. Again, an elder is growing in his godliness as well. But when God convicts him of that sin, he repents of that sin. And this man is not known as a hothead. He doesn't lose his cool at every single turn. He's not a fighter. He's not a brawler. Uh, He's not a man who's always wanting to debate and argue his points in virtually every conversation. Uh, He shows an ability to listen well and to restrain his lips from venting all the frustrations that he might be experiencing. And he has a handle on his finances. Uh, Basically, money isn't his God. He uses money, he spends money, he saves money, but money isn't what he's in love with. And he's not using people for personal gain. Money, to him, is a gift from God to be enjoyed and stewarded well. And regardless... If he has a six-digit salary, six-digit figure salary, or he's just making enough to put food on the table and pay the rent, he models Paul's admonition in 1 Timothy 6.6. Godliness with contentment is great gain. Because money isn't his God, he truly cares for the people around him, and he uses his money to bless them. That's why he should be hospitable. He should be a friend to those in his life. From his home, to his breakfast, to his lunch, to his dinner hours, to hallway conversations at church, he gives off the aroma that he's kind to everyone. Not every elder will be an extrovert. Not every elder will always be smiling. Not every elder will be the most outgoing one out there. But when a church member needs to talk, or a stranger comes his way, he welcomes them, and he cares about them. He models selflessness with how he treats others in his life. Now, friends, there's certainly a whole lot more we could talk about. Titus 1 has very similar qualifications, maybe with some nuanced distinctions, but I really wanted to talk about tonight godly desire and godly character. This is an awesome responsibility It's an amazing responsibility, and it's a responsibility that comes with a stricter judgment. I was reading a quote recently by a Presbyterian uh, elder, and he had a really good word highlighting the high privilege of being an elder in Christ's church, and he exhorted men that one day would take this office. Here's what he said as we close. In a very real sense, you are now the representative of your congregation, Not only do you represent them in the work of the church, you represent them to the world. In every area of life, whether at home, at church, at play, or at work, your Savior and your people are being judged by who and what you are. Never forget that every act is now, in the deepest sense of the word, a silent sermon to the world on the depth of your faith, the sincerity of your profession, and the love which you bear to the one whom you call Lord. That's a weighty and awesome responsibility. Let me close us in prayer, prepare our hearts, and then the music team will come up, and then I will come down. Father, we do pray that you would use this teaching to build up your church. Lord, also prepare our hearts now, as we approach your table, to receive it in a worthy manner. In Jesus' name, amen.